1: to Terrify
2: Good evening, children of the night. Here, in the Shenandoah, rain is giving away to the first hints of a warm summer to come. Now, as most of you will be hearing this, I'll be somewhere near the Muskingum River in Ohio, visiting family. But you didn't come all this way to hear about my time in eastern Ohio, did you? So, how about a little bit of fiction? Our first story comes from Carrie Freeman. Carrie Freeman writes about sexy southern men falling in love, although this story is not one of them. She is published by Dream Spinner and Loose Id, and her books can be found at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other resellers. Born and raised in Alabama, she grew up swearing she was going to get the hell out of Dodge the instant she could. Turns out, Dodge ain't so bad, and she never left. Alabama's version of a city girl, she married a country boy, and they live in a small town with their two socially awkward dogs. And now, Carrie Freeman's Southern Comfort.
3: Well, Miss Ada, I, I do declare, these are the best apple fritters I have ever tasted. There must be some delightful family secret that keeps my taste buds just a begging for more. Miss Mildred Drury's mouth had a ring of white that had formed perfectly around her mouth from the powdered sugar. She took on the image of a weighted balloon clown, rocking back and forth in her chair towards Miss Ida. Oh, Miss Drury, you are just as sweet as you can be. Why, my grandmother, the late Catherine McClare, had a case of spices from her grandmother that has been passed down through my family for years. Miss Ida laughed and took a silent sip from her lemonade glass. A drip of condensation fell on her purple flowered dress and her aging hand brushed it away with a quick swish. She hid her disgust that Miss Mildred had not laid out napkins to stop such a mess of water on her summer frock. My goodness, a chest of as you say? How? She searched for a word, sifting through her language bank for something that sounded intelligent and worldly. Her eyes dotted from one end of the front porch to the other frantically. Uh, boring, she said excitedly though when the word escaped her mouth she could tell by the look on Miss Ida's face that it was a disappointment. Miss Ida took a deep breath and another sip of the lemonade before placing the glass on the table and gazing into the space behind Miss Mildred's head, which was a gray ball of fluff, teased to perfection as if someone had taken the stuffing out of a pillow and piled it on top. Have you met the new preacher and his wife? Miss Mildred broke the silence and gave a toothy grin. She seems just as lovely as a lark in a meadow. I oh, know, I don't believe I have. Miss Ida was immediately interested, craving some form of gossip beyond the sheriff arresting a hitchhiker outside of town who had apparently kicked him in the shin and had to be restrained. Is he, she smiled coyly, nice looking? Miss Mildred let out a howl of a laugh that immediately started a coughing fit. Sending Miss Ida back in her chair startled. My my, Miss Mildred, are you all right? Miss Mildred coughed between laughs until she got a hold of herself. Her face had blushed red, matching the geraniums hanging from the railing of the porch. <clears throat> Excuse me, Miss Mildred said, clearing her throat one more time. You are just too funny, Miss Ida," she said, waving her hand down as if batting a fly away. "'He is just as handsome as he can be, and his wife, she is a lark!' "'Miss Ida quickly interrupted. "'Yes, you already said that part, Miss Mildred. "'Oh!' Miss Mildred looked down, embarrassed by her misstep, "'brushing off her lap so as to seem more confident and less intimidated. "'Well, I uh, was at the church Monday evening, "'taking the flowers out of the sanctuary, "'when in comes this couple that look like characters "'from one of them castle stories.' Miss Ida rolled her eyes at the reference, but she realized quickly that Miss Mildred was watching. She smiled and encouraged Do go on. <laughs> so of course, not knowing who they were, I asked them can I help you? And the man said back, We are looking for the church office. I introduced myself and walked them over to the church office where Bob Ewell was waiting. You know Mr Ewell. Miss Mildred nodded her head. After a moment of Miss Mildred smiling and nodding her head like a broken jack in a box, Miss Ida, annoyed and getting rather warm from the afternoon sun, snapped back like a rattlesnake lunging forward to attack. Yes, Mildred, yes, I know Bob. Miss Ida took another deep breath and exhaled as she fanned her face. Miss Mildred had tilted her head down during the outburst and was cutting her eyes from Miss Ida's exasperated face to her own lap. After a moment of birds chirping and a lawnmower sounding off in the distance, Miss Ida said, I do believe that was uncalled for. Do continue. That's quite all right, Miss Mildred replied, straightening her head back up. As I was saying, Bob Ewell was waiting for them and I told them to have a nice day. And as I was closing the door behind him, the new preacher's wife asked, What was your name? She even came towards me halfway out the door and I turned to her and said I'm Miss Mildred, and she said Like a lark. She said I'm Imogen. Then she and the new preacher smiled at me and I left just a smilin' myself. Miss Mildred's face lit up with pride as she awaited Miss Ida's response. But Miss Ida sat there staring blankly at Miss Mildred. Was that all? The words were forceful, disappointed and cutting, like a fork through butter. Her nose was turned to the side and her lips revealed the lipstick that had clung to her teeth. The wrinkles on her cheeks created caverns of darkness that scared Miss Mildred. She started to imagine little creatures jumping out of them and running toward her with swords, yelling, stupid woman, and you say dumb things. Miss Mildred wanted to hide behind her chair and close her eyes so that Miss Ida would just disappear. She felt the tears welling up in her eyes and she tried not to blink, not wanting Miss Ida to see her hurt or vulnerable. Well, she finally said, voice shaking, of course that's not all. Miss Ida perked up her face and slid back to normal, her eyes less beady and more intrigued. Go on, Miss Ida demanded nodding her head once more in encouragement. And there was nothing else. That was the end of Miss Mildred's news, but she knew she couldn't leave the story there. For many years, Miss Mildred had been laying the groundwork, praying to God that she could fit with Miss Ida and her high society ladies. She volunteered where they volunteered, lunched where they lunched, drank the same tea, wore the same clothes, and now Miss Ida had come to her home for the first time for afternoon lemonade and brought her world-famous apple fritters. Years of her life she had spent, dreaming, yearning, pining for this moment of acceptance. She couldn't leave the story there. There had to be something else. Then suddenly there was. Miss Mildred leaned over in her rocking chair towards Miss Ida and whispered, what I'm about to tell you cannot be repeated. Miss Ida's eyebrows grew into her hairline and disappeared under her wide brimmed white hat that was cocked left on her head. I will take it to my grave, she whispered back as she leaned forward. Satisfied with the trust she had for Miss Ida, Miss Mildred looked around her to make sure no one was walking down the sidewalk or lurking around her house. Then she continued. Well, I don't mean to tell tales out of church, but as I was walking home from the church, I realized I had left my purse on the pew. So I walked back and tried going in the front sanctuary doors, but they were locked. Those doors are never locked, Miss Ida said, shocked and shaking her head in horror. I know, and I thought right away something is not right. I checked the door on the back side of the sanctuary, and it was locked, and then the Sunday school hallway door was locked. Finally, I got to the kitchen door, which was open, and I made my way through there, in the fellowship hall, and then the nursery hall, until finally I got close to the church office. I heard a sound, so I peeked my head in and saw the new preacher just a sitting there, facing the window, very quiet like. So I didn't disturb him. I walked on to the sanctuary, and when I got there, I heard a sound like something was banging around. Miss Ida was sitting on the edge of her seat, palms pressed to the arms of her chair. I cracked the sanctuary door so I could see in with my left eye, but all I saw was the pews, all in rows like usual, so I opened the door a little more, very slowly. As you know, it tends to squeak. Miss Ida nodded quickly. Just then, out of the corner of my eye, I saw the back of the new preacher's wife standing near the organ, and I almost said hello, but... Then Bob Ewell came up to her and started kissing her madly on the lips, almost toppling her over. His hands were moving all around from head to... Miss Mildred pointed to her buttocks, afraid to say the word. I gasped in disbelief and ran out of there as fast as I could. Well, I'll be, Miss Ina said, sitting up straight and fanning herself again with her hand. I just can't believe Mr. Ewell and the new preacher's wife, and he hadn't even started preaching yet. Miss Mildred shook her head with a smile that turned quickly into a furrowed brow as she noticed Miss Ida's face was not one of delight. I sure do thank you for telling me this, Miss Mildred. Can you imagine a preacher and his wife mixed up in such an episode? It reminds me of one of those TV shows my daughter is always telling me about. I'm not going to have it. We will not have such sin in my church. Miss Ida stood up and Miss Mildred stood up just as quickly saying, But you said you promised. Miss Mildred's eyes were wide, her pulse racing. She had not intended the story to leave the porch. The damage would be irreversible. Miss Ida took hold of Miss Mildred's shoulders. You did the right thing telling me. Now, don't you worry about a thing. I will take care of it all. You just have to tell the elders what you saw, and then we will get rid of that filth in our church. You will be a hero, Miss Mildred. Mark my words. That lark, Miss Ida made her fingers into sarcastic quotation marks in the air, will get what's coming to her. Miss Mildred was too stunned to move as she watched Miss Ida march down the steps and onto the sidewalk, her pale, veiny legs rippling as she stomped. Miss Mildred collapsed into the chair, breathing hard, the thump-thump in her head and heart getting stronger. I just wanted her to like me, she thought, putting her sweaty face into her hands and rubbing it around, feeling the slime of her makeup squish through her fingers. She envisioned Miz Ida telling the group her story, and the whole pack of them storming the church with pitchforks, demanding the new preacher and his beautiful lark-like wife to be burned at the stake. She heard the preacher and his wife's nice words in the church and saw their innocent smiles. She saw Ms. Ida's face all twisted and heard her words. Is that all? Echoing menacingly in her head, The apple fritter turned in her stomach and she hurled forward on the porch, vomiting regret and fear on the blue-painted slats. She couldn't bear the thought of Ms. Ida causing them pain, but she knew there was no going back from the story without her hopes and dreams of acceptance, being thrown to the wolves to be devoured. She could reason with Ms. Ida, or at least she could try. Her knees were still shaky as she stood up wiping the vomit from her mouth and the sweat from her face. She brushed off her dress and made her way slowly down the steps and three houses down to where Miss Ida lived. It was a beautiful two-story yellow home with black shutters. The porch had a number of ceiling fans, ferns, and wicker furniture all perfectly placed in perspective. She rang the doorbell and waited. Miss Ida came to the door right away. "'Miss Mildred, good, I am glad you're here,' I just called Miss Ewell and asked her to come over for a chat. Now she lives across town, so we have a few minutes. Miss Mildred stood at the door bewildered. It was already happening, and soon the lie would get out, burning down the lives of the innocent. Come on in, Miss Ida beckoned. Miss Mildred stepped through the doorway still silent. She had never been inside Miss Ida's house and had always dreamed of this moment. It was as picturesque as she envisioned, with a winding stairwell lined with old family photos going upstairs, large tropical plants and golden containers spread throughout the room, and Tiffany lamps on small wooden tables. The air smelled of fresh gardenias, and the temperature was heavenly. Miss Ida led Miss Mildred into the parlor where white upholstered furniture surrounded a marble fireplace. There were ivory figurines on the mantle of horses along with a vase of deep red roses. Now, when she gets here, Miss Mildred, we must remember that we are revealing that her husband has cheated on her with the preacher's wife. This is going to be very upsetting news, and as I know you are not, well, emotionally stable, it may be best for you not to say much and let me do all the talking.' Miss Ida was standing at the doorway talking down to Miss Mildred, who was now sitting in one of the white upholstered chairs nearest the fireplace. She did not look at Miss Ida, but was drinking in her surroundings, the temple of worship that she had entered. She wanted to smell the fabrics, touch her face to the wall, place her tongue on the wood. Her skin was titillated by the pillow that brushed her arm. Her senses heightened by the realization that she had finally arrived, but Miss Ida would not stop talking. Her voice became a saw ripping through the sacred silence of the shrine. Every word she spoke sent Miss Mildred's hand waving it away from her ear as if a gnat was being a nuisance. Miss Mildred, when Miss Ewell gets here, you must move to the other side, as I will need to be closest to her. I wouldn't want you to get in the way. Miss Ida remarked with a smile on her face. Ms. Mildred glimpsed at the smile, the snide smile she had seen for years, the same smile that told her, without words, that she was not good enough, the smile that gave her nightmares and sent her screaming into the night, pleading to God for help. This was the smile that created a lie that would soon end Ms. Mildred's hopeful existence in the world around her. The smile took over her face like that of a joker in a pack of cards, carving through the sagging skin and into the cheekbones and stopping at the black pits of her eyes. Ms. Mildred saw the hideous creature in front of her, the stark contrast to the flawless heaven that surrounded her. Without hesitation, she stood up from the chair and grabbed one of the horse figurines from the mantle. Now, Miss Mildred, that is a priceless heirloom. Please be careful. Miss Ida's words caught in her throat as Miss Mildred threw the figure, striking her on the forehead. Miss Ida fell to the ground with a thud and quickly propped herself up on her arms, which were extended behind her. Her hat had jolted off her head, leaving a mess of gray hair sprawling out every which away. What in the hell are you doing, Mildred? She screamed, watching Miss Mildred get another figurine from the mantle. Please, no! The second figurine struck her on the chin. Dislocating her jaw, blood gushed from her mouth and began to pool on the white carpet. Ah! Miss Ida yelled in pain. Her back flattened to the floor. She turned her head to cough the blood out of her throat, sending the red beads in sprays around the room. The mess enraged Miss Mildred, destroying the immaculate carpet and walls. She took the vase of roses and bashed it over Miss Ida's flailing knees, her screams becoming muffled and more desperate. Over and over she bashed them until her legs did not move, the caps visible through the tattered, pale skin. Ms. Ida's purple-flowered frock was covered in red and disheveled around her body, which was now convulsing in the floor, shaking like a mouse that was caught in a trap. Ms. Mildred watched as the shock took over Miss Ida's body, her eyes rolling back in her head and the blood in her throat coagulating. She left the room and came back with a blanket that was draped over a chair in the hallway and laid it on top of Miss Ida, like one would spread a picnic blanket on the lawn. She bent down and made sure the corners were straight and the wrinkles were flattened. She walked back and sat down in the chair nearest the marble fireplace, her back to the morbidity behind her, and brushed off her dress. Miss Ewell will be here any minute, she said aloud. We must remember not to be emotional, as it is hard to hear your husband is cheating on you, especially with the preacher's wife. Ms. Mildred smiled.
2: That was Carrie Freeman's Southern Comfort as read by Nicole Doolin. Nicole Doolin is a voice actor and writer from New England. She has performed voiceovers and narrations for various mediums, audiobook, podcast, e-learning, game, film, video, and radio. She produces a podcast called Audio Literature Odyssey, in which she narrates classic literature by the likes of Austin, Poe, James, and more. Furthermore, Nicole has performed contemporary narrations for a number of popular award-winning podcasts, such as the No Sleep Podcast, Right here on Tales to Terrify, far-fetched fables, starship, sofa, and crime, city central. When Nicole isn't narrating stories, she's writing them. She writes fiction, poetry, and plays. Her work has appeared in the Wilderness House Literary Review. Right here on Tales to Terrify, 3AM Magazine, 365 Tomorrow's Flash Shot, and the literary anthology Wilderness House Literary Review, The Best of Volume 3. Additionally, her stage plays have been presented in festivals. Thank you, Nicole. Our second story of the night comes from Ray Cluley. Ray is a writer. It used to be that he was a teacher who said he was a writer, but now it's actually true. His work has been published in Black Static, Interzone, and Crime Wave from TTA Press, Shadows and Tall Trees from Undertow Press, and Icarus from Lethe Press, as well as featuring in a variety of anthologies. Some of these stories have been reprinted for Ellen Datlow's Best Horror of the Year, Volumes 3 and 6, and Steve Berman's Wild Stories 2013, the year's Best Gay Speculative Fiction. A couple have also been translated into French and Polish. Shark Shark won the British Fantasy Award for Best Short Story in 2013, while Water for Drowning is nominated for Best Novella this year. His most recent work includes Within the Wind, Beneath the Snow from Spectral Press, and a collection, Probably Monsters, which has been released by Shizine Press. He writes nonfiction too, but generally prefers to make stuff up. Now, Ray Cluley's All Change.
1: Robert had become one of those people who ran for the train, huffing his way along the platform briefcase in hand and heart struggling to keep up, because he was getting bloody old. Well, sort of running. 76 and feeling twice that. He knew people were making silent bets as to whether he would make it or not. To hell with them if he didn't. The train now approaching Platform 3 is the 616 service for... Excuse me, excuse me, coming through, please. Calling at... Miss, thank you, excuse me. But he was too late. The people spilling from the carriages had become people heading for other platforms, heading for exits, greeting loved ones, buying coffee, and the one he was looking for was likely already gone. Oh, Christ! The full extent of his blasphemy was lost to the sharp blast of a whistle and the reprimanding hiss of closing doors. He scanned the people quickly, looking for loners, but everyone was in such a rush Crisscrossing crossing each other's path, pushing, pausing, that he couldn't get a decent fix on anyone or anything. The train pulled away, leaving Robert to wonder why they were never late when you needed them to be. He closed his eyes and concentrated. It had all been so much easier when he was young. Now there were too many trains, too many platforms, too many new points to start and finish from. The only thing that didn't change was the fact that they always came through here. Wherever they were heading, wherever they had come from, this was where they came to at some point in their journey. Strangers passing through, unnoticed by most. Usually he was ready to meet them. Had already sensed who or what they were. But not today. Today, just a feeling that he was meant to be here. And then a feeling as to which platform, and that was all. Is this right platform for 634? a young Asian lady asked, clutching his arm. Robert shrugged her off with a, How should I know? adding, I don't work here. Though, of course, it looked like he did. That was why he wore the blue trousers, the blue blazer, the awful tie. Not quite the uniform, but close enough and people barely noticed the briefcase. The woman said something in her own language to an older lady beside her, and they left. The older woman looked back, but they were already too far for Robert to hear whatever curses she threw back at him. They weren't real, of course. Just an offloading of foreign syllables. He let them go. Where? he muttered. Where? There was a man by the kiosk, looking around, maybe searching for... no. He had a coffee cup stuffed with an empty crisp packet. He was only looking for a bin. There, coming down the stairs, a woman, awkward in her steps because perhaps she... No, just walking too fast in new heels. That one, though. The young lad, looking up at the screen. Something felt right about him. Or, rather, it felt wrong. Yes. Yes. It was getting stronger as Robert made his way over. A man in his early twenties. Dark hair. Brooding looks. Pale. No. Not him. It was the screen he was looking at. Robert was feeling the screen. The arrival time. The next train. He didn't know who or what he was after yet. But he knew the train they'd be on. He hoped he could kill them quick and get home before dark. He was going to have to get on the train. Wouldn't be the first time, but those days had been in his youth, when he was less confident. Once, when he'd just started, he'd followed one all the way up to Scotland.
0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: And just to make sure he was right about them. He had been, and he'd done what he had to do. But his caution had meant another long, uncomfortable journey back again. Plus, there was the expense to consider. It was cheaper back then, of course, riding the train. Much cheaper, and with a better chance of a seat. But at the time, it had still emptied his wallet. These days, he usually managed to get it done at the station. Usually. Often, it happened in one of the toilet blocks, or far enough down the platform, near enough to the lines that he was able to drag whatever was left to the edge and roll it onto the rails. It depended on what he was dealing with. Some he could do away with, even in a crowd, confident nobody would know what had happened. Excuse me, mate. Where's the gents? Robert raised his briefcase to point, because his other hand was clutching the knife in his pocket. The lad looked feral, but then a lot of them did these days. Cheers! He watched to see if the young man actually went there, if it had been a genuine inquiry and not an attempt to glean something from Robert's actions or demeanor. But the lad headed right for the toilets, with some degree of urgency, in fact. It seemed genuine enough. Robert remembered one particular encounter in those toilets. He always remembered the pretty ones. She looked like a backpacker, but the bag was there to conceal a large, gelatinous hump. The weak spot Robert lunged for as soon as he'd identified the type. After that, it was just a case of scooping handfuls of water from the sink to wash the ooze down the drain set in the floor. He bagged the clothes and binned them. A man on the platform checked his watch, checked the screen, looked around. His gaze settled briefly on the tunnel down the track, but from where Robert stood, he couldn't tell if it was impatience for the train or with a longing for the darkness he saw inside. If the man moved that way, Robert would have to follow. He hated he in the tunnel now that the lines were electrified, but such hazards had their uses. Still. It had all been so much simpler in the old days. Old days. Young days, more like. These were the old days. The rails made a quiet tst whispering the train's imminent arrival. Tss, tss, moments before the voiced announcement declared 625. He still didn't have his target. He'd have to get on board with the crowd. People shuffled closer to the platform some of them moving further up its length, as if they could tell where the doors would stop, though they hadn't seemed able to do so before when they'd had all that time waiting. People picked up bags and cases and extended the handles of their wheeled luggage. One man shouldered a guitar case that could have really been anything of a number of things. Robert was getting his feeling from all around, but couldn't pinpoint a target. He would have to get on the train, with whatever it was he was here for, and worry about locating it later. The train had three carriages. Robert wanted to seat himself at the furthest end, but it was remarkably full. All the seats were taken, except one that was wet with something pungent. The man in the next seat, asleep against the greasy glass of the window, didn't seem to mind it, though. Maybe it was his. Robert let him keep it turning his body sideways and moving further up the aisle. Despite his care, his case bumped the armrests and elbows of a few passengers, but they accepted his apologies with the familiarity of seasoned rail users. If you go, you can sit here. Oh no, Robert said, though it would be a good spot. He hated the fact that he looked old enough for the young lady to give up her seat. Really, she said, I won't need it much longer. She had beautiful eyes, green like go. Well, if you don't mind, he conceded, already sitting down. Before he could complete the action, the train pulled away, and he had to steady himself with an arm against the fold-up table of the seat in front. He fell into the seat with the lurch of movement. The fold-up table opened in front of him. A newspaper had been tucked there, folded open to a page he knew was the third one because of the picture. Robert sighed, turned the paper over, and settled himself. He put his briefcase by his feet to the annoyance of the teenager lounging in the adjacent seat, who had to move his own feet out of the space. For a moment, Robert thought the lad's ears were bleeding, but it wasn't blood. It was a red wire leading to an IP3M pod thing somewhere in a pocket. Still, from the sounds of how loud it was, Robert was surprised there wasn't blood as well. It was suddenly clear why the young woman had been so eager to move. He was feeling something from the kid, but it might have just been teenage angst and rage and hatred at the world, judging from the band that screamed at him, yelling directly into his brain. In fact, the feeling could have been coming from anyone around him. The carriage was so full it was hard to tell. His plan had been to work his way slowly up the train, but he was already in the right carriage. He knew that much. Robert was getting old, but he could still go to the toilet on his own. It just took him a little longer. This would be no different. He feigned getting comfortable so he could fidget a few looks at other passengers. Opposite him, reading something from a tiny screen they wanted to be a book, was a swarthy fellow in business clothes. trousers, shirt open at the neck with no sign of a tie. He wore a tiny crucifix, so that narrowed the possibilities down one. His chest and throat were rather hairy, though. His nails were long. Robert saw them whenever he pressed a button on his toy. Next to him was a woman in a burqa that could have been disguising all manner of signs. Robert thought perhaps a body in thin, crisp bandages. Skin tight and leathery, a skeletal figure held together with cobwebs. In front of them, a pair sat talking in quiet tones. Whispers, and maybe they... The teenager beside Robert shifted in his seat, turning away from Robert to face the window. He traced lines in the condensation. Nothing arcane. Not an ancient script, just faces. Reminders of previous victims? Maybe it wasn't music he listened to. Maybe it really was the screaming it sounded like. Something to remember his prey by. Or maybe the faces were something voodoo he could spit a hex at. No, he wiped them away. The countryside was out there somewhere, rushing past the window. But it was dark and all Robert saw was streetlight where he wanted trees and the red rear lights of cars like evil eyes in the early night. He noticed his fellow passenger had a reflection in its surface, and he noticed the teenager notice him notice. What are you looking at? Robert didn't answer, but turned away. Tickets, please. Robert settled back into his seat and patted his pockets for his wallet, found it, folded it open. There was a library card in the plastic window where the photo of a loved one should have been. He caressed it briefly, as he might a lost wife. When Robert was a child, he loved to spend time in the library. As he grew older, to escape the horrors of the war that terrified his country, he would bury himself in books. From boys' adventure stories, he went on to Stoker, Poe, and M.R. James. By the time he was old enough for the war, there was no part for him to play in it. But he was old enough for Lovecraft and Mackin and Clark Ashton Smith. The library had taught him a lot. It taught him how to fight a different war, different to the one his father had died in, but a war just the same and just as dangerous. More so because the enemy was always changing and had a variety of strengths. Fortunately, most had a variety of weaknesses, too. The books had taught him that. He needed to clear his mind for a moment before trying to focus again. As nice as Nicky, nineteen, a student from Middlesbrough, looked in bikini pants and oil, Robert decided to read a book of his own, rather than the newspaper. He rested his case on his lap, flipped the catches, and rummaged around inside without opening it more than he had to. He would feel what he wanted easily enough, avoiding the bottles and the vials and the cold metal, the leaves, the chalk, the holy symbols. The first book he found was old and brittle and ribbon-bound, sealed with a silver clasp, but the next had the comfortable, warm flexibility of a second-hand novel, and he withdrew it eagerly. It was Ray Bradbury's The October Country. He would read The Jar again, take comfort from its familiarity, and regain a sense of who he was and what he was doing. Tickets? Return, please. Robert asked, pulling out a handful of notes. End of the line. The conductor tapped at a device he wore strapped across his chest. His actions were slow and weak, and Robert thought maybe he could detect a faint odor coming from the man, something chemical, something earthy. He looked carefully at the man's face, his hands, and thought maybe they were too pale. He had the complexion that was referred to as ashen, or wan, depending who you were reading. When the man saw him looking and offered a hesitant smile, the teeth Robert saw were crooked and yellow, and there was something caught between the front ones. Spinach, maybe. Maybe something else. Then the machine was spitting out an orange ticket, cutting it with a robotic hiccough as the man took Robert's money. He shambled away to the next row of seats. Tickets? A couple of the other passengers were looking at Robert. He wondered how odd he must have looked, scrutinizing the conductor. One of them, a woman with braided hair who kept licking her lips like she was tasting the air, gave him a nod, and then turned away. The other, a middle-aged man with receding hairline and poorly fitted suit, chuckled to himself and said something to a companion Robert couldn't see. Hmm. Maybe. A dead baby, a tumored brain, or glistening things both fat and pale. The night, the swamp, or the in-between. Anything and everything was in that jar. It only depended on who was looking. Robert loved Ray Bradbury. Fiction is where we find our friends. That's what Robert knew. And none of that unconscious or subconscious rubbish. We knew what we were doing when we created such things. We put them in stories to be told around campfires, and later we put them in books. Lots of them in books. And that way, people would know. Robert's greatest weapon was his library card. At least it used to be. Recently, he wasn't so sure. Monsters wore hockey masks, gloves with blades, something white-faced with a stretched-open jaw. Now, at his age, he was thankful that they sparkled, was glad to fight noseless foes with a curious grasp of Latin and a name that shouldn't be spoken. Diluted devils. Paper scarecrows. Easy. Robert read a few paragraphs, enough to relax and Then he only pretended to read. With most books these days, that was okay, because these days, most people only pretended to write. But it didn't seem fair to Bradbury. So he slotted his ticket between the pages as a bookmark. That was how he noticed he'd only been sold a single. Uh, there's been a mistake, he said, leaning out into the aisle for the conductor's attention. He held up his ticket. Excuse me? I asked for a return. The conductor faced him, said, Tickets. Tickets, and continued up the train. Robert began to stand. It was the conductor, hidden in plain sight. A purloined letter no one else could read. A ghost no one else could see. Robert reached down for his case, but the teenager beside him put a clammy hand on his. There's no coming back from where we're going. The line terminates with us. The way the young man kept wiping at the window as he spoke told Robert he needed the condensation. He realized now that the wetness of the man's T-shirt came not from sweat, but from the skin beneath that leaked moisture as much as it craved it. He had probably been sitting in the seat with the damp patch earlier, his voice was thick and bubbly, his words like gas escaping marshland. Found what you were looking for? Robert didn't know if the creature was referring to itself or to the fact that Robert was carefully rummaging in his briefcase. As soon as you find your stake or silver bullet or whatever. It burped and a thick fluid rose and fell in its throat. You'll need something else, and then something else, and something else. Look. The teenager that wasn't a teenager pointed carelessly at others in the carriage. Everybody was looking at Robert. No, everything was looking at Robert. There was a woman with a saber-toothed smile. There was a man who shimmered when he moved, fading into the upholstery. And beside him, a boy with a lap that writhed. A woman with a skin of stitches and scraps of shroud or bridal gown. And others, lots of others. An old man knitting at a furious pace. It looked like wool, but the line descended to somewhere unseen. A bulge around the midriff that could have been a sack of something silky. A fox with bright green eyes green-like go, padded down the aisle, pausing to nod its snout at Robert and to sniff briefly at the seat it had given him, a green-eyed monster jealous of nothing Robert had to offer. With a sweep of tail it was gone, brushing past a pale man in a suit dark as night, a man who stood and moved forward, a blur of ink and clothes made of what you see with your eyes closed. Hello, Robert, the man said with a voice from under the bed, with a whisper from outside the window. Hello, Robert, said something that hurt to look at, something that lived in uninvented corners. Hello, Robert, and Hello, Robert. Hello, Robert. Words from fur and from fangs. Words grunted, squealed, howled, growled, and gibbered. Their collective breath was one of blood and bile and burial soil, chewed worms and rotten fungus. The pale man in tailored gloom came towards Robert. Each soft step on the well-worn carpet was the sound a promise makes as it breaks you found us all, it said with a mouthful of ash. All right, said Robert. Okay. He closed his briefcase and then his eyes. Would it be teeth or claws he felt opening his throat? Would he be torn by spiny talons, falling away in fleshy pieces? Or would they drink his spinal fluid? liquefy his bones, let him leak his last in a poison-swollen agony. None of those things, said a tiny man above him. He was nestled in amongst the luggage and the overhead carry space. He closed his eyes at Robert, and a new one opened in his forehead. It was a color Robert had never seen before. We're not going to kill you. He knew that these things lied. He knew that these things told the truth. Maybe they would possess him. Maybe we already do. One of them had tried back in 82, lingering at the station platform. It had decorated many trains with human colors, leaping and splashing. It had pushed Robert from inside, but he'd pushed it right back a tug of war he wasn't sure he'd won. She had been playful, full of fun, said the little man-thing, wriggling into a more comfortable position. She liked to run and skip and jump, run from you or so she tried, but you knew what to do, and so she died. I hate poetry. Not true, said the man. You do, you do. Courage, Keats, and Rossetti, too. What are you? One had a cat's face, and one whisked a tail. One tramped at a rat's pace, and one crawled like a snail. How do you, barking, mewing, hissing, mocking, tore her gown and soiled her stocking. Shut up! The little man closed his eye and opened his others, opened more, opened all of them. I see you. Robert lunged up from his seat. He didn't bring a weapon out from his briefcase. He intended to use the case itself to mash the tiny little bastard into paste. Several hundred hands seemed to grab him. Claws tore his jacket. Hooks ripped it. Long, multi-knuckled fingers folded around his arm. Something ropey and wet snared his waist, and a hand of bone forced him back. Forced him down. Something cloven kicked him. Something slimy whipped him. And something that wasn't there, something that was only air, held him in his seat. His briefcase was taken by something in red sleeves. The cuffs spewed things that crawled and fluttered, and they scuttered across Robert's laugh. <laughs> they told him. As the train hurtled into the darkening night, The carriage he was in seemed to writhe and pulsate with things that shouldn't be but were. things he knew. The monsters have changed, said the tiny man without speaking. Look. The newspaper before him fluttered open, pages turned by invisible hands. He saw wars and child porn and riots and terror and rapes and murders and tumors that couldn't be cured. And look. A story that had been circled with Blotty Blue Bureau had told of a body discovered on a railway embankment found by rail workers carrying out emergency repairs. Police were treating the death as suspicious. It didn't mention why, but Robert thought maybe it was because the woman's wounds had been sewn with salt. He'd hoped to rely on the city's urban scavengers after that, but... Even they weren't desperate enough to feast from such remains. You don't need to worry, said the boy beside him. He was wet with a substance thicker than sweat now. Part of his lap had burst, and his t-shirt had dispersed into rotten patches of cotton that clung to a withered chest. Robert covered his eyes with fists. He thrusts his fists against the posts, and still insists he sees the ghosts. Then brought them down on the chair in front. He did it again, and again, 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 again. You're not helping. The words fell upon Robert like bee stings. Where are you taking me? Usher. In Smith. The house of pain. Robert shook his head. Into the closet. Under the stairs. It's the old horse, where all rail service terminates. But where was that? Somewhere over the fucking rainbow, said the little man amongst the luggage. My pretty. Where the wild things are, Robert muttered. His breath fogged the air in the carriage. It was getting cold. Where we're going isn't important. Do you know who we are? Robert saw many that he could give names to, others he knew only by type. You're the monsters. That's what we are. But do you know who? He knew what they wanted to tell him. They would quote Nietzsche, talk about struggling with monsters or staring into the abyss. One of them might mention different sides of the same coin or something like that. Do you know who you are? They were definitely going to give him Nietzsche. We know who you are. We all do. Robert sighed. I am legend, am I? It was meant to be dry, a wry comment to die by. But a laugh built inside, and he bellowed with it. He cackled, and he wiped away tears that had already been there. Monsters change, but you don't want to. You do like the pretty ones, and still insists he sees the ghosts. Robert thought he might be sick. The train rocked side to side, and the things on board swayed with it, more used to its movement than he was. It lurched with brief bursts of speed, like a serpent lunging for prey, and sometimes it seemed to plunge, as if they were hurtling down somewhere deep and endless. you Coming with us, it was a pointless thing to say because Robert already knew it. Most of the others thought so too and turned away, sitting back down, coiling into their seats, gathering themselves into cocoons, forgetting him, for now. Beside him the seat was vacant. The cushion was damp and squelched at his touch. He wiped his hand on his trousers and stared out at the October country. He didn't see it. Instead, he focused on the reflection he saw in the glass. For now, it was his, whatever may lie beneath. He hoped it didn't change into anything else. What are you looking at? The faint image of himself was fading from the glass. Nothing, said Robert. He said it until it was true, and all there was to see was darkness.
2: That was Ray Cluley's All Change, as read by Drew Sebastini. You haven't experienced true horror until you've weathered a winter in the bleak, frozen wastes of the Canadian prairies, and Drew has survived quite a few. He's been spinning tales since he was old enough to hold a pencil. Most often, Drew flexes his creative muscle as an advertising copywriter and creative director. He hopes you won't hold that against him. But in his spare time, he moonlights as a voiceover artist for radio and video commercial work. Drew lives in Saskatoon, Canada, with his wife, son, and a menagerie of furry creatures. Thank you, Drew. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Our show is produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk. Thanks to our webmaster, Josh Leitze, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.